living. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. So like most women, I am engaged in several group chats. And so it's nothing for me to wake up to well over 100 text messages in any of these group chats, depending on what is the news of the day. That news could be somebody's man ain't acting right. Somebody's kids ain't acting right. Somebody's boss ain't acting right. Or generally the world just ain't acting right. Last week, I woke up to hundreds of text messages because the world, specifically the Internet, was out of pocket over some photos and a video that were released on social media. And the word of the week is privacy. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Now let's just be grown here for a minute. Last week, some video and still photos of actor Jesse Williams and his man parts made the rounds on social media. And it had that brother trending for days. Now, You know, when somebody, especially a man, is trending on social media for his man part being exposed, it's either because there are really positive reviews or really negative reviews. There are never any ambivalent feelings towards these things. And Jesse, who was on this podcast in season one, let's just say there were a lot of rave reviews about what people saw. Now, Jesse is starring in the revival of a Broadway play called Take Me Out, which is the story of a black gay center fielder who is grappling with his identity and how that fits into the world of professional baseball. It's a play that explores homophobia in sports, racism, class issues, and is generally regarded as very thoughtful work. The play mostly takes place inside the locker room of the fictional team, the Empires, specifically the shower area. Several cast members are naked during a good bit of this performance, and even though the theater locks up people's phones somebody was still able to sneak theirs in and film jesse completely naked now that some of the snickers and the jokes and even some of the fawning have passed we need to be clear about what this was a complete and despicable violation the second stage theater where this play is performed strongly condemned what happened in a statement calling it a quote gross and unacceptable violation of the trust between the actor and audience that's entirely accurate Yes, Jesse Williams is burying himself publicly, but he did so understanding that there was a trust there between himself and the people who paid to see him perform. He trusted that the people in the audience wouldn't be recording him and using what they saw as a way to get clicks, likes, and attention. We have a very bad habit in this country of thinking that because we are entertained by someone that we own a piece of them. We think because we pay to see someone perform, they owe us something beyond just their incredible ability. We think that they owe us a piece of them when all we're actually owed is just entertainment. That's it. On numerous occasions, celebrities have been exposed against their will. Some years ago, someone hacked into the iClouds of several celebrities and exposed their nude photographs. And there were jokes and people passed around the photos, not caring that by doing that, they were all complicit in a violation. And coming up later in I Got a Story to Tell, I will share a very personal experience, one that I have never shared publicly that relates to this very topic. See, it's very easy to dehumanize celebrities or people who have a profile to think of them as just a commodity. 
we seem to think that because they have this lifestyle, we cannot imagine, make the kind of money we cannot truly fathom, that it's an acceptable trade-off to treat them like they don't matter. But if there is one thing we're all entitled to, it's dignity. It's humanity. It's the right to be treated as a full and total person, no matter how public our profession. We all have a right to privacy. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a genius. Literally, he is the engine behind one of the greatest rap groups in hip hop history. Dare I say of all time, regardless of musical genre. Through his producing and his artistry, he has had a deeply profound effect on hip hop. And I would just say music Overall, he's a composer and actor, but what I find so fascinating and compelling about him is the way that he sees every piece of music as a movie. He defines evolution, transformation, growth. I'm so excited. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the RZA. Risa, I'm going to start this podcast hoping you can settle an argument that my husband and I literally just had a few nights ago. So we were talking about A Tribe Called Quest and what a classic album Midnight Marauders is. And he said he didn't think that it was that many hits on that album. And I'm like, what you mean they don't have any hits? And I named a war tour. Oh, my God. Electric relaxation. And then he said, "Mm -mm, oh, my God, was not a hit. And I am arguing with him. I'm saying, oh, my God, was definitely a hit. So we're just going back and forth. (laughs) But it got me to thinking about a question that I wanted to ask you. What in your mind constitutes a hit record? Wow. Good question. I mean, what makes it a hit in in, in reality is the longevity of the song and how uh, the listener returns back to it and how new listeners discover it. So in, a, so in that capacity, you know, there are songs that you may have missed on somebody's album, right? Or you may have discovered as an album track and eventually as years goes on, it becomes the big track that when you go to the concert, you need to hear, right? Like Bohemian Rhapsody, for instance, you know what I mean? Probably not was considered a hit in this creation and a hit at the time, but it's a it's such an iconic rock and roll opera type of production that it's, it's a hit. It's a movie now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like old woman yelling at cloud or sound like how my parents sounded when they were talking about me and my music, especially as hip hop was emerging. And I'm sure you've heard this too from the older or previous generations, when hip hop artists were doing sampling, all they would say is they're not creative. They're just stealing the music that we had. And it's interesting because these days, I just don't really feel like there's a lot of timeless music being made now. I don't know if it's because my sensibilities have changed, but you're the professional, you're the expert. So I would love to hear your opinion about whether or not you think there's actually timeless music being made right now. I mean, of course there is. There's always going to be timeless music being made because it's speaking to a generation that's going to grow and live and be older and 
potentially that music will hit the, the ears of their children and and so forth and so forth. So you look at hip hop. Yeah, hip hop was sampling, you know, from Al Green, James Brown and Otis Redding. And even me, I was digging deeper into old stack songs that was not considered hits. Right. Like you listen to a song like uh, with Wendy Renee Tears or even even the Charmels, you know, as long as I got you, which, you know, becomes a sample for um, for Cream. It wasn't a hit record. It was a recording that they made, but it still was a hit record. But it took another generation to reinterpret it. Uh, you look at Dolly Parton, I Will Always Love You. And then you look at Whitney Houston turning it to one of the biggest songs in the world. But it was still what it was. You look at a rainy night, uh, on, the, uh, on the Midnight Train to Georgia. That was recorded by, uh, I think, this white songwriter. It never even... Not even 50,000 people heard it <laughs> when he did it. Uh, Gladys really caused it, and it's a timeless hit. So music is like that. And I think even now, you know, there are songs being recorded by artists, whether, you know, you know, Drake music, uh, you know, Wayne, Little Wayne music, Kodak Black, and A Boogie, you know what I mean? Of course, Kendrick is out there. J. Cole is out there. Um, Young Thug is out there. So for us, it doesn't hit our check boxes based on what we've been exposed to. But for the young people who are exposed to it now, this is their entry. This is their vibe. And the best of that will translate on to another generation. The worst of it will disappear. It's just, it's just like uh, in anything. Like there's, you know, you, you could go back and maybe radio plays the top hundred songs, maybe the top thousand songs. Is being played, but there's millions of songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? It'll be interesting just to see how we look at things 20 or 30 years from now, because streaming has just changed everything. You know, there are songs that when I look at the streaming charts and I look at what's number one and yeah, there's a lot of songs that are in that top 10 that I'm familiar with, but there's also four or five songs that I've never heard of before. You know, like I'm thinking, where did that come from? So I think it's going to throw a lot of the metrics off when we look back on this particular era, I use a sports analogy. I think we used to look at passing for 5,000 yards among quarterbacks as being a really big deal. But because of the way the game has changed, you have somebody like Matthew Stafford and, you know, whether or not he should be in the hall of fame uh, is is not central to what I'm about to say, but he's thrown for 5,000 yards in a season. And as people are having this, argument about whether or not he belongs in the Hall of Fame, just to put that 5,000 yards into context, and this is no disrespect, but Jameis Winston threw for 5,000 yards too. So throwing for 5,000 yards just doesn't mean what it used to mean. And I feel like the same thing is kind of happening in music. What's your perspective on this? Well, you said, said the word, it's perspective. It's how we, how we look at it now and how it's going to be looked upon later. Sometimes genius is not discovered until later. You know, Mozart and, and Bach and them was writing it. They was actually the outlayers. Like, it was like, oh, this Mozart, he's crazy. He's not, <laughs> we don't want this. And the people who don't want, who didn't want it, most of them are disappeared in history and he still stands. You know what I mean? So, you know, measuring greatness is difficult, right? It's, it's more difficult for the layman. The measurement of greatness should be measured 
against itself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't put a diamond up uh, against the rock, right? Because you just know that, you know, for the, for what a diamond is supposed to be, this rock is not the measurement stick. You have to put a diamond up against the diamond, right? And say, oh, well, this one is more clear and that one's more cloudy. Okay, this clearer one uh, is, is a better crystal. So I think, you know, when you look at music or sports or anything, you got you to, gotta, you know, at first have the proper measuring stick, you know what I mean? And then you could evaluate. Um, the trial court quest, who started this conversation with us, yeah, that was a great album, you know what I mean? Because it inspired others. Others copied after they did it, you know what I mean? Um, electric relaxation, if you look at hip hop, it actually was never that pattern of a sample structure, right? It, it, it didn't exist in hip hop. He brought that to hip hop. Just for that one thing alone turns it to a moment of timelessness because it's a it's a it's a it's a capturing of something new. You go back to uh I think Pink Floyd did the song called Money, right? Which became a hit in, in seven times. The seven time is a count that it's not supposed to work, and especially for rock and roll. But they did it. Money. Dun, dun. Like, and and it's been in so many movies, it was a hit record. So, you know, and, and just for that alone, that album is is gonna have to be made classic because it, it introduced us to something. Throughout your career, what is patently obvious is that you're somebody who has never been afraid to evolve. So I want to ask you a question that I ask every guest that appears on this podcast since it's called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. When did you become unbothered? I think I became unbothered if I am unbothered. (laughs) At a certain point, I just accepted me for me. It could have been during my Bobby Digital years. Because that was probably when I when I, when I caught the most negative criticism of me from those who didn't understand. But yet there was a whole new attraction to me for those who did understand. And it was different people. It was like um, just a different crowd was showing up to, to hang out with me. Even when I was doing grave diggers, it was like it wasn't my, my homies from the hood that was, you know, they pulled up in the benzes. It was people that walked up. You know what I mean? People would have skateboarded up. You know what I mean? People that have tattoos and spikes in their hands or whatever. I was like, okay, I'm attracting them right now. All good. Because that's what art does. You never know, you know, it's subjective, right? I mean, uh, yes, it's, it's subjective, right? Yeah, it's, it's subjective. Subjective, hmm Yeah, subjective. It's like, you don't know who it's going to affect. And when that started happening for me, I became unbothered as you asked, because at the end of the day, I was like, yo, everybody don't got to like me. I better like me, though. And I better know that it's only me. It's, um, it's only one of me right here. You know, even though my sons and my daughters may be able to have the essence of me and maybe they'll grow into some form of me. But in the whole mathematical composition of the whole biochemical equation, okay, it's only one of me. And I'm very comfortable with that. So at what point did you really start to look at yourself as an artist and not just the music guy, the rapper? When did you just look at yourself and say, you know what? I'm an artist. I'm not just this one thing or this other thing. It was during the same period. When the Bobby Digital creation, I had to accept that although hip hop is keeping it real, keeping it real doesn't mean keeping it street. 
You know what I mean? The streets are real. And and I came from the streets and Wu-Tang came from the streets. But in all reality, we was always mixing in our mythology, mythology of comic books, chess, kung fu movies. So really nerd culture was still blended in this in this gangster life, you know what I mean, that we was living because, you know, somebody like Method Man would be outside chasing down a car to try to sell some crack, right? But yet when he's in his crib, he's playing on a video game or he's tw- tw- uh, flipping the pages of a comic book. You know what I mean? And, they, and people in the street won't fuck with him, right? Because he'll, you know, 6'4", he'll knock you out, right? But still, he goes back into that childlike mind when he's in his, when he's in his own home. So that neuroculture thing. So as an artist, when I said to myself, I'm an artist, is when I created Bobby Digital because I'm creating something that can't be tangibly connected to, to the streets, can't be tangibly connected to um, the, the keep it real concept of hip hop because it's actually, it's all imagination now. And when I realized it, I think Robert De Niro helped me because I think around the same time I saw Cape Fear and he, you know, Robert De Niro's, you know, we, we know him for his mafia movies, you know what I mean? We love him with these Goodfellas, Casino, you know what I mean? Godfather, Two, uh, Taxi Driver. You know, we know him, Mean Streets. We know, we know that's Robert De Niro to us. But now he's coming in playing some psychopathic killer. And he, he slayed it. I mean, what a performance. And I was like, wait a minute. Now I understand why I have all these different personas about myself, all these different names I got it for myself. And I accept it. Yo, I'm an artist, man. And Bobby Digital is an expression of my art. Just like Prince Joaquin was an expression of it. You know what I mean? Now, actually, uh, Robert De Niro is a great example because he went from psychopath to mafia guy. And then suddenly he's starring in lighthearted comedies. Next thing you know, you know, he, again, he's with Ben Stiller playing his father-in-law. Exactly. Making us laugh all day. And that's what I mean. So art is like that. And then once you know you are artists. There's something else you have to recognize, which I recognize is that, okay, that means I could translate my art in multiple forms. It don't have to just be lyrical. I already proved it when I was making beats and when I was doing lyrics, right? And now I'm directing my own videos. And also now musically, I'm not just sampling what was already, you know, digging for crates. I'm actually learning the song structure or shall I say orchestra structure. I'm like, doing 16 bar phrases and 32 bar phrases of music before it repeats. When I realized that I can manifest it on multiple levels, I started to do that. And that led for me becoming a composer, left me being brave enough to even become an actor because really I wouldn't act in the early phases of the wrestler. First of all, we never wore makeup in our videos. Oh, really? Yeah, we, did, we, didn't, we didn't allow makeup. If you put on makeup, that was sucker. You know what I mean? And and look, and for videos, maybe it is. You know what I mean? Maybe. You know what I mean? But when I started, didn't start playing with acting, well, that's part of the process. You know what I mean? It's part of the art form. You know what I mean? An actor put on stuff to make their hair longer. They put a mole on their face or, or you know, women will put the lipstick and the, and the blush and and pierce the eyes, you know, whatever, you know, to make that character exist. And so when I accepted art and it started acting, 
I accepted the, the stage of what that was. And that led to me being in front of directors. Now I'm in front of directors and I'm seeing that. And I'm like, wait, that's a, a, a macro of my micro. Because when I make an album, I'm actually directing. But now as an artist, I'm like, wait, I can actually multiply that micro to a macro. And I learned how to, to how to direct films. And, you know, and I just kept growing. You mentioned a moment ago when you were doing Bobby Digital about how you saw the crowd kind of evolve and change a little bit. And one thing that I noticed as somebody who can still remember the first time I heard Cream, uh, like I still remember when the album dropped because it was my senior year in high school. But I noticed over time how much the fan base for Wu-Tang Clan has completely changed. The core fan base, of course, they're still there. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, real talk, you might go to a Wu-Tang concert and it might be more white people in there than black people, which is wild to me because y'all just kept things so real. I mean, y'all are the street. You represented a, a certain generation like this every man hood experience that we were all experiencing at the same time. So what do you think was the turning point of, of that? Like, when did that happen? How did that evolution take place? I think that once you start going platinum and multi-platinum, in order to do that, you have to have our white brothers in the country and white brothers around the world buying it because the number of consumers has to multiply. And eventually, if you look at, you know, just America alone, if you go to any hip hop concert, you're going to see more white brothers now than blacks. You know what I mean? Most, most, you know what I mean? You'll get some artists in some territories where, you know, it's just, it's sort of like, like, like there's a lot of blacks. So let's, let's use Atlanta as a template. So now in, in Atlanta, at first, it was mostly Blacks at Wu concerts, right? And our fan base wasn't in the, you know, multi, you know, a couple of thousand. Like, it wouldn't be like eight to 10,000 people standing there in the beginning, you know what I mean? Because first of all, it was, it was the South and, and it was the Black fan base. But as years went on, that fan base increased, but it's, it, it becomes 50-50, at one point, 50 percent black, 50 percent white, because now that population is joining. But then in some cities like now, if you take it back down to, uh, you know, to Utah, where of course the population is, is mostly white brothers there anyway. But we did a concert in Utah, 10,000 people, and maybe it was 300 blacks there, 500 blacks. You know what I mean? So basically all the black people in Utah came to that concert. <laughs> <laughs> I think hip hop just did that. I think hip hop expanded itself outside of our culture and attracted young people um, from all walks of American life. And, 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 and I think it happened for us in 1997. I think we did the tour of Rage Against the Machine and we was playing every night. It was 30,000 people a night. And that, I think, helped us kind of, you know, without a radio success, it helped us grab a great audience of of our white brothers and they, they, they they've been with us since and then i also remember when the asian brothers would actually show up and of course wu-tang you know is is a is from asia right it's the name comes from their culture and i think it also allowed them to feel included into hip-hop you know what i mean and and knowing like wait a minute here's a here's some guys and they you know i don't know everything they're saying I do know what chess is. I do know what Kung Fu is. I do know what comic books are. You know what I mean? So that, I think, attracted them as well. 
Um, and then the culture of the revolutionary culture of Wu-Tang, you talk about mathematics and spirituality. Now we attract the Native American. And I just remember that, that when, it, when it happened, I just remember looking out in the crowd and I was like, wait a minute, this is some of Jesse Jackson Rainbow Coalition right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was actually proud of the moment because as a young man and a young artist, it felt like America was ignoring us as Black men and women and ignoring our art and downplaying it as if like it wasn't real. It didn't deserve to exist. And when you see the young people accepting it and they say it was meant to exist, not only does it, was it, does it deserve to exist, it was meant to exist and it multiplied until now it's the biggest form of music in any culture. Any rock and roll guy you meet has hip hop in his vibe now. You know what I mean? Or, or hip hop is somewhere present and you know, the biggest country songs had 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 some hip hop in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, seeing the evolution is, I guess, you know, I, I know you welcome it, obviously, but in a way, is it very surreal because hip hop was always meant to be a rebellious art form that was supposed to stand not necessarily on the outside, but it was meant to be the resistance. It was meant to push. It was meant to be the disruption. And to see it so widely mainstream, it's almost kind of scary to me. <laughs> I'm thinking like, wow, how did that happen? Well, I would say no, it was both. It was disruption. It was the revolution, but it was also just the fun. Like, like what KRS One says, we're not starting violence. We're just having fun. Scott, he's Scott Lavaca and KRS One because, you know, he became a scholar. His first album was "Got Out of Aim." My nine millimeter go bang. But on his second album, he says, "Yo, I'm a philosopher. What's your philosophy?" You know what I mean? And and so that's part of of, of growth, right? Even the revolutionary. Right. If you think about this, is look at one of our greatest revolutionary, uh, Malcolm X, right, who did so much for our culture. He was very poignant and fiery in his earlier speeches. But as as he got older and mature, he tamed some of that. Right. And his academic nature, empathetic nature, start to manifest itself. And to the point that even though his message was to us, White people are now in his audience listening to that message. Because in all reality, the truth has no race, color, creed, sex, or gender, or anything. It's just, it's truth. It's, it's available to everybody. Music is also that. It's a universal language. It always existed in both forms. One thing I would say about hip-hop that, that we should all embrace is the foundation of it. Starting out up there in Boogie Down Bronx or starting in the five boroughs in New York. And you got some people say, well, who's in Queens doing it? Who's in Brooklyn doing it? But let's say starting in those five boroughs, right? And being really a product of young Americans. It's definitely that. And when you think about young Americans, that means that you're going to have some Latin brothers. So you go back to the foundation of hip hop and you see Grand Wizard Theodore, Charlie Chase and those brothers early on. And they're Latin. Right. You go back to the early parts of hip hop and you hear when hip hop start to, you know, move a little bit beyond uh, like Sugar Hill Gang was a big hit. But then, you know, hip hop wasn't a lot of big albums wasn't selling like that. Right. It was only very scarcely. Then one DMC comes, LL Cool J comes and they began to make it like platinum on platinum. Right. Then you have a, a white guy like Rick Rubin sitting there programming the drum machines and giving them those rock chords. Hard, dun, 
that thing is actually the heart is really the rockhead. You know what I mean? But still, it's American music. You know what I mean? And it and it goes. And so, of course, at one point, it's gritty, it's grotty. You used to come to a Wu Tang show, and you would see no white people there. They was probably even scared because it was, you know, it was our first hundred concerts. I gotta say, they never ended without a fight. <laughs> There's always, yo, brain. We, when we played on Blame the Rockets, <laughs> oh god, we break out, and we wanted it. We we was that young energy, right? And we knew it. I said, like, yo, we, we started. I started like, hold on, let's, let's put it at this part of the set list so that we could get through some of this because, yo, you know what's going to go down. This coming. Then after that, we ain't nothing to fuck with. This is this is go. You know, it was that kind of energy. But then after, as that young energy, that rebellious energy, that strength, and then that wisdom all start circling around the country. Next thing you know, skateboarders feel that way too. They feel like they want to bring the ruckus. You know what I mean? Graffiti right? So people just start to feel it. And um, I think that we should keep that in mind that it has this revolutionary, it has this disruption, but it also has this unifying force. I would quote Queen Latifah, U-N-I-T-Y. You know what I mean? It has that force. And it actually did unify the youth of America in all reality. Uh, you know, I say that there, there's no black president without hip hop. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it helped that the first black president, obviously President Barack Obama, how much he embraced hip hop. So it's like, you know, yeah, it, it was part of his rebellion as well. But listen, there's a lot more I want to get to with you uh, to talk to you about Saturday afternoon Kung Fu Theater and lots of other stuff. But we're going to take a very short break and we'll be back with more with RZA. Earlier in the show, I discussed how somebody filming Jesse Williams during his nude scenes on Broadway was a serious violation. And I got a story to tell about how my privacy was violated in a similar fashion. Maybe not exactly this way because I wasn't on a Broadway stage, but similar enough. This is a story I have never shared publicly. Some years ago when I was a single woman, I was in the midst of a flirtation with someone. And as these flirtations sometimes go, there were pictures that were sent from my end to this person. Uh, I was at ESPN during the time and beginning to make a name for myself. And so, yes, you could argue that it wasn't a particularly smart thing to do, given my position. But I was under a false illusion of safety. This was a flirtatious moment taking place between me and this other person. That flirtation fizzled and absolutely nothing came out of it. And by nothing, I mean nothing. There was no ever any physical contact involved. And I gave no thought to the photos until one day I was contacted by the authorities because the person I'd sent the photos to was among a collection of well-known people whose email accounts had been hacked. And the hacker had extracted certain material from those accounts with the intention of either blackmailing people or selling them to somebody who had a similar intent to blackmail. That hacker had tried to sell the materials to someone who was working undercover, thankfully. And my photos were among those materials that were up to a high bidder or what they thought was a high bidder. The authorities arrested this person, charged them with a bunch of crimes, and they were sentenced. 
And I cannot properly express to you the level of fear that I experienced as all of this was unfolding. I was in fear that I would wake up one day and these photos would be all over the internet. And while my face wasn't in any of these photos, they were sent from an email account that I no longer have. And I suppose, I guess I could have denied it was me, but that probably would have been tough to do. By the time the authorities had arrested this person, I was in a relationship with my husband. We were boyfriend and girlfriend, and I was terrified that this would end our relationship. Even though the flirtation was something that happened long before I met him, I'll admit that when the authorities contacted me to tell me they'd apprehended the person that was trying to use these photos uh, for profit and blackmail, I was not truthful and transparent with my husband about what happened. I lied and I told him just a small kernel of the truth, minimizing it to a simple story of how a person's email account that I had been in contact with had been hacked and the authorities just wanted to make me aware. I left it at that because I was so very, very ashamed. Now, that is not an excuse because I should have been honest. But for a long time, I lived in fear that I would wake up and see these photos. I lived in fear of what it would do to not just our relationship, but how it might ruin me professionally. I wrote a victim's impact statement for this person's sentencing under anonymity, of course, because I was given that option. And again, I did not want the world to know what had happened. I wrote on paper what I couldn't say out loud, not to my husband or even to a lot of my closest friends. It is one of the worst violations I have ever experienced. And whenever there is a story that is along the lines of what happened to Jesse Williams, I am triggered in ways you could not possibly imagine. And now back to more with Derisa. I'm curious, when Wu-Tang, when you all were first coming out and the group is starting to experience success, did you always envision Wu-Tang as a brand and not just a band or mm-hmm. not just a group, rather? Yeah, I envisioned it as a movement, even. <laughs> so even bigger than that, I shortchanged you. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that what we were doing, what we were saying and what we were expressing, I don't know, I felt like it was needed. You know what I mean? And I felt like even the concepts of some of our thoughts, I felt like it was better for, you know, first for our culture first, for the black culture, and then for the whole entire American culture, and then for the world culture. Because within Wu-Tang, you know, the W, you know, you know, we, use, we, we, we give you different meanings, but sometimes we say the W means witty, right? But no, the W is wisdom. And wisdom is good, you know what I mean? Wisdom is good for man, woman, and child all around the world. And, and at a point you start listening to us, you know, respect the deck says, I bomb atomically. It's Socrates philosophies and hypotheses can't define how I'll be dropping these mockeries, lyrically perform um, robbery, flee with the lottery, possibly they spotted me. So when he says Socrates philosophies can't define it, you know, he's making the claim that what we're doing is deeper than the old Greek philosophies. It's pure because it's now and it's the youth speaking to teach the truth to the youth. You know what I mean? It's like it's here. You know, ODB, Wu-Tang is for the kids. You know what I mean? Method Man, let's go inside my astral plane and find out my mental is based on in- instrumental records so I can write monumental. It's like all this energy is there. The lyrics on top of lyrics. You know, waiting on royalties take too long. It's like waiting on babies. It's like it makes me want to slay. Like all the reality being stuffed in these rhymes 
Um, I, I thought it was going to be like, yo, you know, you're young, you know, you, you want to take over the world. <laughs> and, I, and this is like my way to do it. You know what I mean? But felt that, it, that I, you know, let me say this book. I don't know if I ever said this before out loud. And I guess as you get older, you start saying shit, right? But at one point, I thought I'd be a great person to rule our world. <laughs> like, that's how much I felt like, because I care. I, I felt like I care. I felt like I understood our nature of man, woman, and child, black, brown, red, yellow, and white. And I felt like, yo, the Wu-Tang, the translation is men or man who deserves God. You know what I mean? So you have to be deserving of God. And that's through your, through, through your, through your personality, through your creation, through your empathy towards others, right? And through your ability to govern others, right? Because a king is, you know, someone who sits upon the throne and rules wisely and justly. You know, the R in my name is for ruler. So I was like, I should be a, a ruler. And a ruler is not just a ruler who's ruling you, but a ruler is also used to measure. You know what I mean? To measure the situation and understand that everything could go zigzag, zig, but we all still, we all still will find ourselves facing a law. And if we know that, we, you know, we're going to face a law, right? No matter, you know, now I use a law as, a, you know, the proper name I use to describe the creator of, of, of all things, you know, and we all got to face that, whether we believe it or not, you know what I mean? So will Wu-Tang be able to guide us back to that, you know what I mean? Would I be able to help lead that that guidance? So it could have been pretty egotistical. Uh, I met I met other artists who felt the same way. <laughs> I remember talking to X, and he was like, yeah, like you know, he felt like he was you know the second coming that we needed. And and I think at every given moment, it's because of art itself that every artist in his own way are right about that because they're adding on the piece to the puzzle. Well, I guess you can also argue that if you didn't think that way, that wouldn't make you great at what you do because you have to have a certain level of confidence to do what you do. I agree. Yeah. So it makes sense. I want to ask you about Old Dirty Bastard, you know, one of the most memorable performers in hip hop history. When you think about him, what sort of moment or memorable story that you always think about or constantly go back to whenever you think about ODB? Well, for me, since he's my family. I actually think about us before his name was ODB, but his name was just Asan Unique. And we would just sit up all night and look at the stars and wonder what made them and talk about the distance of the sun from the earth and how long it takes light to reach us and, and what's happening in that period of time when the light is not there, even though we don't never not see it there with our eyes, but it's still time to get there, right? It's still time of a travel to talking about what we can be when we grow up to be men. Are we going to be, are we going to leave an imprint on the world, you know, dreaming and trying to actualize the dreams? I, when I think of him, I think of that. And I think of it often. I mean, blessed to have so much love for him that, you know, he actually appears in my dreams. You know, that's why I just shared it with your audience, you know, because as we get older, then, you know, some of the people we're going to lose tragically in our youth, like ODB is a tragic loss in the youth. And like, you know, you wish he was here physically enjoying this growth that we've, it was able to manage to maintain as Wu-Tang. Then as you get older, 
you know, people pass the guards, you know, your, your, your parents pass on, your grandparents pass on, and older uncles pass on, and you become the people that take their place on earth because you're now somebody's uncle and somebody's parent and somebody's grandparent. And I just want to share that with that love is strong. It seems like the people visit, you know, are in your dreams. You know what I mean? Just to give you that boost of love. And it helps, I think. I know it helps me because in my dreams, me and old dirty still go get a 40 ounce and, and talk about dreams and chase and even chase girls in my dreams. So. Don't, don't tell your wife. Don't tell her. I, I tell us, you know, I, I'm trying to let her know. I had not a great dream last night being dirty. Hey, that's the beauty of it, I think. You know, something I just I'm just sharing that with you. Uh because I think it's special, you know, some, you know, a lot of my woo brothers have been losing our parents, you know, rest in peace to Miss Woods, Raekwon has just lost his mom's top of the year. And, uh, you know, I just want to say this, you know, we're like, we got to be grateful for each other and grateful for each other's mothers, right? Even the mother of your husband or the mother of, of your best friend, they put up a sacrifice to, to bring that life here and to nurture that life to be that what that life is to you. You know what I mean? And so that love has to be strong. And if it is strong, like I said, you know, you'll get those dreams of that'll give you those moments of joy to help you deal with the, uh, all this pain. So I'm gonna get out of that chamber, but I just want to share that with you. Well, no, I think that was a beautiful thing to share, but it does lead me to a question to ask you about your mom, because I know that, you know, you've lost a parent as well. You lost your mom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you dropped out, uh, I think, in ninth grade. I know you went back and you got your GD, but you were just talking about sacrifices. I mean, is it true? W- was it your mom that actually signed you out of school? Now, how did you pull that off? Because that's usually not something most mothers want to do. I asked, uh, she asked me straight up, like, you know, the people, you know, people like sending all the letters and told them to come in and, you know, we sit in there. And, you know, they asked, you know, she, you know, she looked at me, what do you want to do? Like, seriously, like she knows that she, I think she knew that about me. If I say it, I do it. You could say me to, you know, you know, how some kids you ask them to do something, they won't do it. You can ask me 10 times and I'm like, yes, you could. my little brother sent me to the store. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm that guy. Like I've always, you could depend upon me. You know what I mean? And I think when she asked me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do music. And she was like, okay. And she signed that. She 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 believed that I was determined in my convictions of this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go waste my son. And I signed out and I started chasing music and creating and, and took a GED a year later. You know, to show that I'm not, you know, what I mean, passed it with flying colors, signed up for college, got accepted to college. Um, just after I passed the entry test for college, I was like, mm-hmm. I know I could do that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. And I took it to the other other way. But yeah, my mom's, she, she, she rolled with me on that. Well, it's surprising to learn, not necessarily about your mom, but, you know, as you mentioned, like you got your GED a year later. I mean, clearly you have a thirst for knowledge, but I'm guessing you just didn't like school. Yeah, I'm the type of dude that would cut school and study at home. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yo, it'd be like five people in, in the crib and we reading math books and reading the books, but we all hanging at home in my room, you know, a couple of girls there, of course, but we, we, we are actually putting the study in. We're not, not doing it. We show up as, I showed up on Fridays 
and, and hit 95s on the test. And everybody in the class, like, no, nah, how the fuck he do? Excuse my language, but how he do that? It's like, yo, um, first of all, my memory was very good. It still is pretty good. Um, bless it on that. I realize. don't have a photographic memory, but have a very strong memory. Um, I realized that. And it's been, yeah, that's, a, that's one of my uh, superpowers. But like you said, thirsting for knowledge, not wasting time. So it, I don't, school structure didn't work for me. And I don't think it works for a lot of people in all reality. You got to want to learn. You can't be forced to learn. You know what I mean? And school sometimes forces you because of its structure. And the structure sometimes is disruptive to the student. You know, even in our culture, we, you know, Western culture, we read the books a certain way. You ever notice, like, I got enough children to know that, that sometimes the children start this way automatically. And we, we force you to reverse it. But yeah, you go to the other side of the world, even in China, where you see their academics is beating the mess out of us. And a lot of these countries are beating us. And they do it this way. So that reversal may have an equation that we don't understand. I have someone in the family that having a hard time speaking, a child, right? And, you know, they're like, well, you know, we got to take them to a th- therapy. There's no child two years old, we're not speaking yet. And I just said to the mom, I was like, it might not just be speaking because English is not making sense to it phonetically. You know what? She'd be watching all these anime things and do be making a lot of sounds and stuff like that. So like I said, she's probably speaking a different language. You know what I mean? It's probably, you, you, like, you don't know that your child may not naturally be born to, to, to speak English. You know what I mean? English has, has to be something that's taught. And, it's, and it's, it's not an easy language even in all reality. So um, I'm just saying that to say that sometimes our system and our structure forces us not to be successful academically because of that structure. And we should take, you know, we should take a look at that as a, as a society. Yeah, I mean, because as you know, what frustrates most kids is that you wind up being forced to learn things that you have no aptitude in or don't even like, right? Mm-hmm. But because they have to check off certain boxes, you know, uh, like I was always terrible at math, right? Just terrible at it. Part of the reason I became a journalist is because it didn't involve math. <laughs> I love writing. I love language. I loved English. I loved reading. I love storytelling. And like you, I grew up reading comic books because the stories were so good. So, but that kind of aptitude is forced into a structure that doesn't necessarily fit where your creativity is going. And sometimes we can definitely torment kids in school. Yeah. I mean, with all the additional nonsense and only when you get to college, it's where you realize how much you really didn't need. Right. You're like, wait a minute, I didn't even need this. This is messed up. But I'm curious though. You know, given that by your own explanation, you were somebody who had the ability, like you knew what you wanted to do. So when did you first realize that you loved music? And when I say love music, I don't mean love it in a way that I love music. I mean, loved it to the point where it was this burning desire in you that this is what I want to do. When it was all I wanted to do. It was like when you wake up in the morning and... You wash your face and you go to your turntables. But was it like a sound you heard or, or you know, music? Like, was it an influence that made you say, like, yo, this is it? Oh, I mean, when I first heard hip hop, I was, uh, I feel like I was eight years old, seven, eight years old. And and I went to a block party with Jizza, my cousin. And as soon as I heard the, the music, how the DJ was putting it back and forth, 
And then the guy was on the mic. He said, dip, dip, dive, so socialize. And clean out your ears and you open your eyes. I say, one, two. I was like, little kid. I just, you know, I started, and other kids was doing little break dances. I got on the floor. I started break dancing. I tried to, you know what I mean? And it just hit me. And then I got sent back down south because I was living down south uh, doing that, you know, for, for those years until I came up to New York at the age of seven. And then I hear this hip hop and I'm sent back down. But now when I'm down south, I'm showing my cousins, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then when uh, when Uncle Hollis passed and we had to uh, live in New York, uh, come back, it was like I just had an insatiable desire to constantly hear hip hop, not just music. I actually used to get nauseous on R and B. It used to make my like nauseous, like it made me like feel woozy headed. Took a long time to snap out. Of it. I didn't snap out of that until like maybe two thousand one. <laughs> and I don't mean soul music. Okay, I'm like, what? <laughs> I hate y'all. Then I, I snapped out of it. Like I said, I snapped out of it. And then I'll say that, uh, you know, music, it just became like, even now, like, honestly, 90% of my mornings is spent with music. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say, you know, I think what other guys said, the guy from Supreme, you know, he came to visit my crib. <laughs> And uh, I don't know why we end up giving them a tour of the house. And you know, I don't do that to like, but I don't know this is, and this was, this was the early phase of their company. And so it was very inquisitive and I just wanted to share my knowledge. He's like, yo, I said, this, you know, it's my little master suite, right? You know, and, and it was like, yo, you got a drum machine near your bed? <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like, I don't, I, I like, if I wake up with the inspiration, I want to be able to get it out. I had keyboards all in my bed, y'all. You know what I mean? In my first house, my coming wife, I had a guitar in every room. You walk in, it's guitars, this, every, right? And so my wife loves me, so she she rolled with me. Uh, but when we got our second house, <laughs> she's like, honey, this picked up just in one area. But yeah, I'm the type of person that I just love music and I just love the vibration of it. I just know that it's the it's my first love of art and it's all in my DNA. So with that said, I think, you know, it's safe to say that in some ways, maybe you caught people by surprise with your new album uh, with DJ Scratch, Saturday Afternoon Kung Fu Theater, because you have done so much composing, acting, all these other things. I think there was some thought that you might have just retired from hip hop and emceeing and that sort of thing. So what was it that brought you back? Well, the quarantine <laughs> had me sitting still. And actually had a chance to play with all the toys, you know, for hours a day, like, not just like after coming from the writer's room or after a job. And so I'm sitting here just playing and I'm going through my hard drives and I'm, I'm listening to old demos and old Wu-Tang songs that didn't come out or old tracks. And I came across this track that DJ Scratch had made. And then it reminded me of another one that he played for me that I never heard again. And, and uh, of course, you know, I called the checkup on him and his family you know, during the quarantine and see how he, how he was doing. I stayed in a few, a few good brothers that I keep in tune with, um, as you know, Q-Tip and all that. So some brothers I stay in tune with. But I um, reached out to him and it was like, yo, you got that track, uh, that Martha joint? He's like, yeah, yeah, I got that. I said, he said, well, what's up? I said, yo, I'm thinking about, you know, recording some lyrics. I've been writing. I mean, he was like, yo, I got mad joints. I got a whole joint, bunch of sound that only Wu-Tang would sound right on. You know what I mean? And I was like, yo, send that to me, yo. Let's, let's do a whole album. He was like, yeah, let's do that. 
And uh, he sent me the tracks. And, you know, three or four months later, I wrote everything I was going to say. And, and I demoed it and sent it back to him. He was loving it. He's like, yo. And then I just, just did it. And for me, going back to the love of music, my first love was emceeing, right? That was the first thing that I did. I'm an MC before I became a producer and all that. And I think that's because you only, because as an MC, you control yourself. You don't need nothing else but yourself. And hip hop itself started with just a DJ controlling the beat and an MC controlling the mic. And me and Scratch did this album with that same concept. No, no money was exchanged. There was no talk of businesses. You know what I mean? It was just like, yo, boom, 50 50, this is, let's just do it. And we did it, y'all. And I'm proud of it. And once again, why, right? I guess your question is why? Because you could be chilling already. So I could first say it ain't for no money because there's no, there was no money. It was like we made a deal. I went to a label to get a deal or nothing. You know what I mean? It was just like, yo, I did it just for the, for one, two, two reasons. One reason I did it because we can do it. You know what I mean? I think what you call them say in verses, uh, when Erica Badu was uh, versus Jill Scott, Erica said something like, yeah, I got all these songs here. And Jill's like, girl, share them. We are meant to share. It ain't meant to be. And and I was like, yeah, she's right. I, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to get it out. I took I took what Jill said and I took that to my own heart. Like, she's right. Like, you're not going to find what this is going to say in somebody else's mouth because they're not, whatever reason why, whether it's not their experience or they didn't think of it that way. And, or maybe they, they, they're making it for a different reason. If I can make it for no reason, but just the idea to make it and share it and hopefully give uh, the listener uh, a moment to feel what we felt at three o'clock on Saturday afternoons when we would leave our streets and leave the drugs and leave the hustling, leave the sports on the concrete of this projects and go up and watch those Kung Fu movies and they come back outside and play with each other. It's like, if I could put that chi back in the world, add a little bit of my wisdom, why not do it, right? There's nothing to stop me from doing it, right? And so why not do it? And so, boom, here it is, Saturday afternoon, comfortable theater, very proud of it. I uh, hope people that's listening to your podcast take some time to check out a couple of songs on it and, and vibe out with it, y'all. It's, it's, I think it's uh, some good hip-hop health in it. Well, before I get to this game that I play with every guest that appears on the podcast, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the question that I know you are asked quite often, but nevertheless, I'm compelled to ask it anyway. Will the general public ever hear Once Upon a Time in Shaolin? There's <laughs> a possibility. It depends on how many years you live. <laughs> <laughs> Is this going to be like the Kennedy investigation where I think it was like 75 years or yeah, like some crazy number. <laughs> yeah, it's like an 88-year clause in it or something like that. Yeah, well, we'll never see what happens, I guess. Well, all right, so we basically have to be immortal in order to ever get to hear this album. <laughs> Let's be optimistic. Let's, um, okay. You know, if, you know, there's a chance. There's always a chance, right? Yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, it's like Dumb and Dumbers. So you're saying there's a chance, right? <laughs> um, but before I get you out of here, Rizza, thank you so much for giving all this time that you've given me. But there is a game I play with all my guests. Very simple. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. Now I give you two choices. You pick one. And let me just warn you, this is where the real controversy often happens. Okay. 
So because, you know, people love when people have to pick between two things and ultimately that becomes the headline. So we're talking kung fu movies since we were just talking about that. Enter the Dragon or 36 Chambers of Shaolin? Mm, I'm going to say Enter the Dragon. Now, I'm actually shocked you said that. I thought for sure you might pick 36 Chambers. Yeah, that's why the album's called Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> you, you had the right to. Those are, you, anything else would have lost to 36 Chambers. All right. Well, we'll keep with that theme. Master of the Flying Guillotine or the Five Deadly Venoms? Five Deadly Venoms. Yeah, other than Enter the Dragon, I think Five Deadly Venoms is my favorite. Nice. I love that. Okay. Harry, who you played in Nobody or playing yourself on The Simpsons? Oh, man. I'm going to go with Harry. I like I like, I like, like when I could be somebody else. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, The Simpsons is like, I mean, not that many people get to be made into a character on The Simpsons. I know. That was that was kind of surreal right there. Snoop commenting. <laughs> that was... The Simpsons is crazy, right? How, how how we grew up with it, and then one day they drew my face in the Simpsons big lips. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we're talking phrases. Diversify your bonds, or Wu Tang is for the children. Mm. And I know that probably has some sentimental value. Obviously, I'm gonna say Wu Tang is for the children. Even though diversify your bonds, you better do that. And finally, protect your neck or cream. Ooh, nice. For me, I'm going to say protecting that. It's the foundation. <laughs> I know you're like, you better say cream. <laughs> no, no. And speaking of which, uh, is it true that cream wasn't the original title, that that wasn't what it was supposed to be called? Yeah, it, it had a few titles, but the far as Raekwon and Deck being the MCs on it, because we had other MCs on it, trying and trying it. But their first version of it was called Lifestyles of the Mega Rich. <laughs> 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 and then... We changed it and uh, they changed the lyrics because before it was all this mafia, Giganti, and it was like a lot of mafia. And uh, and Deck had some lyrics on it. I just said this last thing before we go. Deck had some lyrics on it that was so descriptive and describes him, how deep he is in his heart. He said a verse, my old dad passed away when I was six. I sit and reminisce with old family flicks and try not to cry, hoping I survived this. And pray to the Heavenly Father to let me get by this. But we got the white male taking over the black male. And then they railroad the black male to jail. We stick up kids, corrupt cops. And then, then it went to that. You know what I mean? And we had to truncate a lot of that energy out of it. But I just never forgot him when he said that verse. I said, man, imagine your father passes six years old and you're just looking at the pictures and you're reminiscing and you're trying to get through it. And it goes back to his other line when he says, uh, I don't know why I smoke cess. I guess that's the time when I'm not depressed, but I'm still depressed. And I asked, what's his worth? Ready to give up so I seek my old earth. So now he's, his father's not there. So only one he could talk to is his mother. And that's a lot of us in our Black community, whether our fathers are past or whether they abandon us. But he said, yeah, I seek my old earth, who explains working hard can help you maintain, to learn to overcome the heartaches and pains. I'm like, man, this dude. So anyway, yeah, that's real special. Well, Rizza, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Uh, you know, this current project that you're doing, I know a lot of us hip hop heads who have appreciated the music that you made. We're just happy to see you back on the mic. 
So, yeah. Thank you. Bong, bong, peace. Yeah, we definitely missed you for sure. So RZA is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered. One of my favorite stories from last week came out of Sri Lanka, where a group of protesters were so angry about the cost of living that they threw their politicians' cars into nearby rivers. Immediately, this got me thinking about something that is really fucking bothering me, which was the unanimously passed security bill last week that extended security protections to the immediate family members of Supreme Court justices. Now, this is happening because once it was leaked that the Supreme Court likely will be overturning Roe versus Wade, protesters showed up at Supreme Court justices Brett Kavanaugh's house because they were upset that a woman's right to choose whether or not she wants to be a mother will be now seriously compromised if they go through with this ruling. And get this, the protest was organized by Kavanaugh's neighbors, who, according to one reporter's account, serve wine and cheese at the protest. Woo, child, the ghetto. (laughs) Of course, it was not hard to overlook the fact that the Senate passed something that they cared about swiftly and quickly. And if you look at some of the other things that have passed quickly, you start to see a pattern. Billions of aid to the Ukraine passed. Boom. Blink of an eye. Making daylight savings time permanent. Boom. Blink of an eye. Meanwhile, codifying Roe versus Wade into national law didn't pass. Voting protections still haven't been secured. Police reform, <laughs> that's funny. Nah, ain't shit happened with that either. A huge debate ensued about whether it's appropriate for people to protest at someone's house, at specifically a Supreme Court justice's house. Well, is it appropriate that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, then over 20 states already have laws in place that will force women to carry babies they don't want? to carry babies that may put their health at risk, to carry babies created through rape and incest. And in some states, it will force them to carry babies to term who are no longer even viable. Is it appropriate that the justices are deciding to end a medical procedure that 70% of Americans approve of? Obviously, I don't think any justice should be harmed or their families, nor do I think their physical safety should ever be threatened. But one of the many reasons that people showed up to protest at Brett Kavanaugh's house is because there is no system of accountability with the purported highest court in the land. They make decisions in a vacuum. There's no transparent process. And all we have to go by is their opinions of record. They have lifetime appointments, which means lifetime job security. The rationale behind appointing them to the bench for life is so that they were never faced pressure from other entities in the government or from other outside forces. But that lifetime appointment also means that they never have to answer to anyone and that they stay in these positions so much longer than they should. Only one Supreme Court justice has ever been impeached in the court's history, which dates back to 1790. And all that shows them is that they can act as recklessly as they choose and face zero repercussions. A job this important that lacks consequences is an invitation for disaster and corruption. 
Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fire. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.